mother tell me how it was when you were young Was the world so very old when your life had just begun Oh, grandfather, tell me, is it true you worked the land And the tools that you used you made with your own hands Before time was only money and machines made man a slave Was the world all milk and honey before all the streets were paved Welcome to the Living Permaculture Show on Public Radio KDNK. This is Stephanie Sison here with Jerome Ossentowski. I'm excited to be back in Carbondale, Colorado and back to the KDNK studio after a six-month retreat to the tropical jungles of Puerto Rico. Today we have a very special guest and longtime friend of Jerome's, Eric Tonesmeyer. Eric is an award-winning author of multiple books, such as Edible Forest Gardens and The Amazing Carbon Farming Solution. He's lectured at Yale University and is an international teacher, among so many other things that we're going to get into during our time together today. Welcome to the Living Permaculture Show, Eric. Well, thanks for having me, and I learned it all from Jerome. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, and we uh, we go all the way back to 1992 when you were an intern, and you had a group of people that you kind of, um, I don't want to call it, call it a cult, but you <laughs> you sort of hang out. You had a, you, you had your own little entourage there, and um, living up at the we had cabin. A good time. And uh, we were doing salad greens, and you were actually you know building some of the first uh, forest garden in on the east. And I was down in Nicaragua. Uh, as a Santalista, I think, uh, putting together an, uh, an alley cropping demonstration farm there in uh, northern Nicaragua. But those, that's the history, and we were doing salad grains. Remember, we do 60 pounds twice a oh, week yeah. and, um, and doing annual production. But we were starting our forest garden at that time, and you guys held in the rock, and we were planting uh, a forest garden up on the east side. Yeah, I learned that terraces are hard work. <laughs> yeah. I remember you guys blew out Marian, um <laughs> overloading the truck when I got back. It was a, kind of a fiasco. And, and since you've, you know, no, uh, you've done some amazing work in agroforestry, uh, and uh, we can talk a little bit about something, that, some new stuff that you're, you're uh, going to be writing, a book on alley cropping for the northern climates. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. Yeah. Okay. So I'm, I'm working with this um, nonprofit based in uh, Vermont. They're called Interlaced Commons, and Megan Giroux over there has reached out to me, and we're working together on a on a manual for alley cropping for the temperate United States, which I think will be useful to people in cold climates all over the all over the world. So it's really a how to guide and it has uh it's done like a workbook so you can kind of work your way through these worksheets in it to help you figure out how far apart your rows should be and math and stuff to help you figure out at what point the shade is going to start to come in right so i i love uh 
Eric. Yeah, those are important. Math is good. Yeah. Math is great. And I think um, to back us up a tiny bit, if our listeners do not know what alley cropping is. Let's start um, with that. Let's great. tell us okay. what that is. Sure. Okay. So alley cropping is growing rows of trees. And in between the rows of trees, you grow strips of crops. Um, in the tropics, mostly those trees are nitrogen-fixing trees that are cut and used for mulch. And here in colder climates, more typically, they are timber trees or fruit trees or nut trees um, with those um, you know, alleys in between to, like, drive a tractor down and, and grow your wheat or vegetables or whatever it might be, or sometimes just hay that people are growing between those rows of trees. So that's what it is. What a good question. Thank yeah. you. Well, and I think alley cropping um, seems to be such an important transition strategy from some of these um, annual systems or hay systems into a more perennial tree-based system without mm -hmm. the farmer having to do a complete wash of their existing strategies and equipment and investment and all of that while they transition to these more perennial long-term um, systems. It seems like a really great model where you don't have to throw out the baby with the bathwater and you can start uh, shifting in a way that you can still make your income that you're more um, accustomed to or dependent upon. I think another That's way... That's exactly right, yeah. yeah another yeah. another way to way. explain, or another way to describe that would be growing in between two hedgerows. And those hedgerows could be at different spacings. Yeah. Uh, if you wanted to do some, you know, corn or beans or something in between there, that could be very narrow. And you, we have an, an, or if you wanted to do silviculture, which would be running animals in there, you could plant you know, grasses and forbs, and, and then they could shade under the under the canopy of the of the, of the a wider, uh, you know, could be walnuts or it could be um, black locusts. There are enough nitrogen fixing trees in the northern climate that we could also do uh, rows of nitrogen fixing trees or mix them with fruit trees or hardwood trees. So lots of possibilities uh, for a lot of diversity. Absolutely. I, I've even, um, for this book, put some calculations together so people could figure out four different species of nitrogen-fixing trees and shrubs, how many you would, how, if, you, if you had them in such and such a spacing, you know, how much nitrogen would they provide per acre? And I found that with some, like red alder, it would be enough to fix all the nitrogen needed for a crop of wheat, wow. which is exciting. Not enough for corn, because we put a lot of nitrogen on our corn in the United States, but it would be enough for a wheat crop. So that's really exciting news to me that um, this could really be a, a contribution to the nutrient budget of farms and keep us, get us away from the overuse of synthetic fertilizer, which is such a big climate problem and water quality problem and so on. Well, not only they're, they're fixing nitrogen in the soil, but, you know, when you cut them and lay them down, that that uh, leaf litter breaks down very quickly and the branches add to the organic matter that, that your other crops are going to grow on. And you can take some of that out of there and feed it to animals. So you can do cut and mm -hmm. carry. And then you can s harvest some of the seeds, like in Siberian pea shrub, 
you can make a hummus out of the seed. Uh, you can feed it to chickens, um, and you can uh, you can run bees in there during the pollination. So that you know, there's so many uh, you know f- you know little uh, micro businesses that you can uh, superimpose into alley cropping, not just a single crop that we have now. Absolutely, it diversifies your farm. It gives you more options of things to sell, and some of those things are things that you would sell every year, like fruits, and some of them are more long-term things like timber trees or something where that's sort of like a long-term retirement planning kind of thing. You know, that 50 years from now, you might be able to bring in an extra five or $10,000 an acre. Um, when, when harvest time comes, there's folks in France who do that where they're, for many generations, they've been mixing walnuts with uh, wheat and they, you know, every year they harvest a couple of those trees, and that brings in a good chunk of money, and they do some planning. Yeah, or when they... a child is born, they'll plant some for their, you know, wedding expenses or something. It's <laughs> <laughs> a really different way of financial planning, I think, than yeah. we think about here. And in France, they, they'll run the pigs under uh, under their oak trees to eat the sure. acorns. And yeah. also, they, yeah. have, they have cork oak they can harvest— uh, and they run geese under these systems as well. Uh, so there's a really lots of silviculture you can yeah. do under, under these uh, sort of you know, savannas. These are kind of like you know, really managed savannas, aren't they? Yeah, and the, the interesting thing is that I, I did a little bit of looking for this book at climate change impacts on agriculture in the United States. What's it going to be like to try and farm 30, 40, 50 years out, because we are looking at trees that are living that long, so you kind of have to think that far ahead. And one of the things that's almost universal in the, in, in the U.S. Um, in most projections is the intensity of rainfall goes up a lot. Mm-hmm. And that means that erosion goes up a lot, because the, how hard the rain falls and the bigger right. storms carry away more water. So practices like alley cropping were in this case, if you were to orient that row of trees and the little strip of grass under them along the contour or near the contour, um, that plays a big, big role in, in reducing erosion. And I think we are going to see those impacts get much, much worse. So it's a way to adapt to climate change while also fighting it by increasing soil organic matter and increasing carbon sequestration in the trees and stuff, too. So it's really an idea that I think we're going to see uh, much more relevant and much more important in the U.S. in the next couple of decades. And how do you see it affecting um, areas like right now in Colorado? All the farmers here are uh, really nervous about the drought, and we're we're already at drought levels so early in the season. Um, you know, preceded by a drought year, preceded by a drought decade um as as farmers are thinking about their long-term plans and their transition strategies if they are lucky enough to still have water um what is the most effective use of that water to protect and make their farms more resilient as the the years come and and the dryness and the heat continues but also these um kind of intense cold snaps as well how do you see uh alley cropping fitting in and i'm so excited that you're doing it for the temperate climate because i feel like there's um a a bit more information out around 
tropical perennial systems, but a yeah. little bit less so for the temperate climate. So how do you see that fitting in for farmers that exist in a drier landscape? Sure. Well, um, uh, well, it's interesting. The, the trees will compete for water with the crops, uh, which can be bad. <laughs> uh, so there's sort of we know that alley cropping in temperate climates works pretty well, down to about 20 inches of rainfall a year. Um, less than that, it is successful in some places. So maybe it can be done in drier places than that. Um, uh, the the trees on the one hand, compete for water. On the other hand, they bring up deeper water and make it available in the soil. And they, by cooling the crops, they reduce uh, evaporation from the crops. They can actually, like in a drought year, they might actually increase the yields of wheat or something that's grown alongside them. So there's this kind of complex back and forth between the balancing the, 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 the benefits of adding trees and the challenges of planting trees. Um, and I don't particularly know for Colorado what's the right um, choice for any given farm, but I think um, uh, they do offer an awful lot of benefits. And it w- you wouldn't want to put a really water-wasting tree in there. You know, you'd want something that can function with relatively low water. What's, what's really interesting in some Mediterranean climates, so... Not so much Colorado, but when you get up into Idaho, a lot of the cropland has winter rainfall and a dry summer. In places like that, um, the if you grow crops in the winter, like if you grow, let's say, winter wheat or barley or something like that, or even you know winter vegetables like kales or garlic or something, um, with deciduous trees, it forces the tree roots to go deeper to get water so it actually in that kind of climate growing trees with crops trains the tree to go deeper so that they're not competing for water because their roots are operating at different levels of the soil different depths of the soil so there's a lot being learned about all this it's really very fascinating area i mean my experience with doing the two acres up above uh, my house in alley cropping, uh, contour planting, uh, I know that I couldn't do it without additional irrigation. And I noticed that, yeah. Uh, yeah. you know, it, it does help stabilize uh, the mulch on the ground, and you are mm-hmm. going to get some mm-hmm. benefit to the major P&Js. And I have, a, a, you know, gotten Siberian pea shrubs to, they're very drought tolerant, but I notice now that with my new wobbler system, um, I green two acres up like amazing, and I've got, uh, you know, lots of diversity in, as ground cover. And so I've created this really incredible wildlife corridor, fire break, and pollinator garden, and long-term food forest with uh, mulberries mm-hmm. and, um, you know, grapes uh, and things that uh, the deer don't necessarily eat. But they come through uh-huh. and eat um, all the forbs and, uh, and the perennial grasses turkeys uh and come through there they get what they want but they they tend to respect uh they you know there's this common ground that you can uh um reach with with wildlife if you have and a lot of growers have done this joe salatin has 40 acres where he he dedicates towards the wildlife 
and they don't bother his, uh, his crops. They, and that happens with me. They don't come into my forest garden because they have their two acres. They come up through every day, uh, stop, have a, you know, nibble around, manure. Um, they even get some water uh, because there's some water in the swale. And they go on up to the mountain. They come back down. It's a nice little uh, dance that you, uh, you can uh, orchestrate with, with wildlife. And, um, and then, you know, you get the extra mulch. And I have comfrey plants up there that are four feet tall that need to be coppiced two or three times a year now. I'm just putting in some uh, lavender. I've got in uh, yucca. And, you know, I keep putting in new stuff every year. Uh, and it's also a yeah. training center for, our, for teaching our swaling and uh, but sure. so, but you couldn't yeah. do that without water at, at, at you know fifteen inches of rain a year. Yep. You are listening to the Living Permaculture Station Show. Is very appropriate. You're not drawing out the you know groundwater, fossil groundwater, or something. So it makes sense for you to do that. That's a great place to do that. Excellent. I'm just going to jump in there real quick. This is Katie NK. You are listening to the Living Permaculture Show. We are talking with Eric Tonesmeyer about all kinds of fascinating agricultural uh, movements, methods, and strategies. Um, Eric, uh, your book, Perennial Vegetables, um, was a book that I've had for a really, really long time, and there were a few um, that I utilized here in Colorado um, asparagus, rhubarb, things like that. But I, I had kind of shelved it for a few years and brought it down to Puerto Rico with me as we're starting oh, this yeah. new permaculture homestead medicinal herb farm adventure in the tropics. And um, wow, what a renewed interest I've found with all of the tropical perennials and, and also just found it so um, fascinating. We're in a mountainous region that is still very much uh, permaculture and uh, Puerto Rican farmers who are doing permaculture but don't call it permaculture. And they have all of yeah. these plants that are in your book. And it's just so normal and average to have um, 10 different species of sweet potato or uh, five different mm. cassavas and, and all this. So I just personally want to let you know and thank you um, that that book has been of value both in this temperate climate of Colorado as well as in Puerto Rico. And I'm, I'm curious about some of your work in the Caribbean and what you're, if you're working on anything uh, right now in that area. Sure. I'm not right at the moment unless I'm, I had, we were, we were going to do a project in Puerto Rico and we got put on hold, hold of course from COVID. So, mm. um, Mostly, uh, my big partners at the moment are in Mexico, um, where there's a lot of really exciting things happening in the state of Veracruz, which is right on the Caribbean, <laughs> but um, uh, often more at, at higher um, at higher elevations. Really, there are you know the solutions are so much closer at hand in many ways. I think in the tropics, in terms of the plants, anyway. Um, but there are wonderful things we can grow here that we're just not paying attention to enough. So a lot of what I've done is look at the, let's say, Mollison's permaculture books and say, wow, you know, pineapple guava with sweet potato underneath. That looks great. What could we do like that here? And that's sort of been a 25-year quest, I think, to find what those 
What those plants look like? You can grow moringa in Puerto Rico. That's amazing. Well, what's our moringa here? Well, okay, we have we have some. What is our moringa? What trees. is our moringa here? Yeah. <laughs> um, I would say for Colorado, moringa, which is a, a tree that has edible leaves that are extremely nutritious, and then also it has pods and all kinds of other things you can eat. Um, goji. The two species. Goji. 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 Yeah, goji. Our moringa. Goji yeah. Would be yeah. Edible leaf goji is one, um, uh, which is like incredibly high in vitamin E, and the fruit's incredibly high in vitamin A, and has really good iron and so on. Um, and the other one is a tree from China, also from China, called uh, Chinese tune. Tuna sinensis is the Latin name, and that one can go down to ten inches of rainfall a year. So, wow. not afraid to get cold. Uh, not afraid to get dry, and uh, it kind of looks like Atlantis or Tree of Heaven. That you know, horrible street weed in cities, and uh, it tastes like chicken soup. <laughs> is it a and Chinese peace? A Chinese peace uh, shrub? It's tun t f o n like cartoon, mm-hmm. and uh, it is. Uh, I it's now my favorite vegetable, and I I did a big analysis of the world's perennial vegetables, and I found that it was the second most nutritious vegetable on the planet. Wow. And it'll grow here just fine. It coppices really well. And if you coppice these trees with edible leaves and you get a long season of tender regrowth, otherwise you maybe get two weeks of edible leaves and then they all get tough. But if you're pruning hard or coppicing, they, they re-sprout over a long season. Mm-hmm. And um, the, the third one would be edible leaf mulberries. Some of the mulberries have very nice edible leaves. And are all, again extremely nutritious, moringa level nutritious. What about uh, the uh, Pakistani mulberry? I was just eyeing them. They're ten inches. Uh, ten. I've got two major Pakistani mulberries coming up on my deck into the house from the Mono uh-huh. greenhouse, and we just had uh, a huge crop, two inch long mulberries. We just finished it about two months that we were eating mulberries, but the leaves are ten inches. And I want to feed them to the um, silkworms, but can you eat the Pakistani mulberry? I don't think so. I think that's Morris nigra, which I don't have good data on it being edible. Um, we used to raise silkworms here. It's pretty easy to do. Um, you, you, depending on how many you want to raise, we just got a cardboard box, and we got the eggs, and you hatch out the eggs and put the babies in with the leaves, give them fresh leaves every day, twice a day. And they grow and grow and grow. And then most of them we would feed to our chickens. They make a great chicken feed to live caterpillars. Um, And then you leave enough. We would leave like 20 or 30 um, to mature. And then they make a cocoon. And then they hatch out and mate and die and lay about 2,000 eggs. So um, then you can do the next generation. It's really really fun and interesting. And they, they can't become a pest because they can't fly. So they're they're very domesticated <laughs> moths. Yeah. Um, but boy, the chickens love them. Really love. Them. We would do all kinds of crafts with the cocoons and stuff. We didn't spin silk, um, but there's a lot of fun things you can do just with the, the empty cocoons. When yeah, they out. we have so many mulberry trees. Some of them are 20, 30, 40 feet tall, and they're fruiting very, wow. very prolifically this year. And I, I propagate a lot of mulberries from cuttings. And um, uh-huh. we, we ordered some silkworms last year, and they got lost in the mail, but I'm going to order some more. Uh-huh. Uh, but I, uh, I think you use these uh, Pakistanians in some sort of a wrap, you know, 
I'm going to uh, mm-hmm. approach some of my uh, restaurant clients to see if they, you can do that with fig fig leaves. But one of the vegetables that I have that I got from your backyard uh, uh, operation, and I want to talk a little bit about what you did is start a little micro business, uh, a livelihood out of your backyard and your neighbor's backyard um, yeah. and growing perennial vegetables. And you brought, you sent me, uh, uh, perennial broccoli, and I have it growing uh, and just about everywhere now. It's starting to volunteer up on the mm-hmm. swales, and um, uh, if you can harvest it in time, it's very short. Uh, if you don't, you can harvest the seed, you can eat the leaves, but that's a, a very, very uh, good addition to any uh, perennial. And I sell a lot of perennial vegetables to the restaurants right now. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, you know, I sell uh, you know two or three hundred dollars a week to two restaurants of, of nettles, uh, lamb's quarters, lovage, uh, my spring garlic, uh, it goes on and on, and watercress. Uh, we're, I think we're going to need to take a little break and wrap up this segment, and then uh, we'll be back for part two of your, uh, of your show. So, Eric, uh, for listeners who are hearing all of this and we're barely scratching the surface, and like Jerome said, we'll do another episode, but can you give us um, some links to where people can find out more information about what you're up to in your books and your amazing work in this world? Sure. Um, for the sort of like uh, gardening stuff, they can go to perennialsolutions.org. And for um, the latest on the plant research I'm doing today, that would be uh, perennialagriculture.institute. Excellent. Thank you so much. This has been the Living Permaculture Show on Public Radio, KDNK. Grandson, I'll tell you truly how it was when I was young. The world was full of wonder in my first days under the sun. Before time was only money and machines made man a slave. The world was milk and honey before all the streets were paved. Remember in the day 